You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Um, a couple of years ago, while living in Seattle, I got an email with a whole bunch of exclamation points from an AOL email address. I didn't even know AOL was still a thing, so this kind of caught me off guard. Um, so I looked at who it was, and it was my mom. She's still using AOL, and it had a whole bunch of caps, exclamation points, things like that, doom, earthquake, all these things like that. Almost like 2012, that bad movie that came out with John Cusack, just red alert. I open it up, and it's about an earthquake that could potentially strike Seattle. And the article was from the New Yorker, and it was filled with this impending doom situation that was going to strike Seattle any day now. Uh, I learned all sorts of new terms, like the Cascadia subduction zone, which is this giant fault line right off the Pacific Ocean there. And when it triggers, who knows when, but it could happen at any moment, Seattle would be turned into an island. And we would be washed away with a giant tsunami and a wave would come upon us. And my mom was wanting me to know this. She was wanting to see what my plan was for when the ground would begin to shake. So much so that she offered to buy me a survival pack. These were available on Amazon. You could stock up. You could go the whole canned good flashlight route and stock these things up in your basement. My mom was wanting me to be prepared for this moment. In fact, when this article hit, though, it was a big deal in Seattle. Amazon reported that its survival pack sales went through the roof. They sold more in a one-week period than they'd sold in the three years previously. It's amazing what fear will do to us, right? When we feel that fear might be on the horizon or something could threaten us, that something dangerous or ominous is near, we tend to act, don't we? Sometimes not even the most rational ways, but it drives us, it compels us. And that's the thing about fear, though. Fear often, if we're honest, it can even blind us. We don't often make the best decisions when we're scared. But we all go through life with things that we're afraid of. This is a very chaotic world. This is a difficult world. There are all sorts of question marks and obstacles and trials and difficulties that we all encounter. And maybe it's not an impending, world-ending earthquake that's on the horizon, but there's something in your life right now that threatens to shake it. There's something that you're threatened by. There's something that you're nervous about. Maybe you're looking around at work and you're going, what is the future here? What's the prospects of my company? How secure is my job? Where do I stand? And it feels like it is a bit shaky. Maybe you look at your marriage right now and it feels a bit shaky. Maybe there's strife and difficulty and you guys have found yourself falling into these ruts and difficult patterns where things feel quite shaky. Maybe you've had those moments and if you haven't, it's coming down the pipeline for every one of us in this room where your health will eventually be shaky, where you'll get a diagnosis, where you'll get some information from a doctor telling you that things are not going the way that you want. In fact, that will come true for all of us at one point in this room. We live in a chaotic, difficult, oftentimes scary world. And the author of Psalm 46, this was his very reality. You have to understand that this is a, a man who's writing this psalm. It could have been David who's facing all sorts of difficulty and strife. When he looks out on his reality as a, as a Jew in Israel, he sees all sorts of turbulence and difficulties and, and literal enemies who would love to destroy him and to take away his life. He starts out, and don't miss this, this is so key. If we look at verse one, we'll put it up on the screen if you don't have it, and you can follow along in your Bibles if you want to. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. 
Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength. Now, I'm a little bit of a grammar nerd, so if you're to look at this in the original Hebrew, it actually translates a little bit better as that God is, is for us. God is, is for us. God is for us as a refuge. What is a refuge? A place that you go when you feel like life is falling apart, when you're looking around and everything seems difficult, when it seems like life is not going to get better, you try to find a place of safety. You try to find something that is going to help you. It's a refuge. I found myself even just this week praying for our brothers and sisters all around the world, fellow Christians that are refugees. Right now today in the Middle East, there's over 100,000 Christians that are considered refugees looking for a place of safety, looking for shelter in the midst of chaos and storm. Now, their, their danger is, is physical. There's literal persecution and physical threats of violence on the horizon for them. I just can't imagine what it's like to read Psalm 46 through those lens. If you're literally saying, God, I am in physical danger. Will you show up, God? Where are you? Will you be my refuge? And here we see in verse one, God is for us, a very present strength and refuge, a place to rest. Now, here's what I've often found, that the things that when they shake, they shake us, they tend to be somewhat of an idol in our life. When it shakes, you shake. When your job shakes, you, you shake. When your marriage shakes, you shake. When your kids shake or their life gets difficulty, you find yourself riddled with anxiety, you shake. When finances are up or down, you shake based on where they're at. There's a tether to that. So what do you do in those moments where life seems to be shaking, where life seems super difficult? What do you do in those moments? What is God doing in those moments and how is he a refuge? It is often in those moments when life seems out of control, when the mountains, the mountains, look at that in verse two there, even or the earth gives way through the mountains. So the mountains, something that seems immovable, right? If you were to look at a mountain, a mountain doesn't seem like something that's easily movable. So what are the mountains in your life? The things that you think could never be moved, the things that you think could never be changed, the things that, the things that you think could never be undone. And yet those things, those things get disrupted. Those things get turned upside down. And what is God doing even in those places? And a mountain's moved into the heart of the sea, and through the waters roar and foam, the mountains tremble at its swelling. Basically, all of life is being turned upside down, and it's in those moments, it's in those moments, here is how God begins to function as your refuge, is he's getting your attention. He's making you realize what you're really, truly tethered to, what you truly love, what you truly rely on. It is often in those moments when life is most shaken, that we find ourselves ever dependent on God. And God becomes altogether more tangible and real, and we become more desperate. We become aware of our actual needs. There is a, there is a temptation for every single one of us in this room to think that we can somehow bring about our own refuge, our own security. We'll just get enough insurance, we'll just save enough money, We'll just run enough miles to keep ourselves healthy. We'll just avoid certain things that we shouldn't be involved in and we'll make the right decisions to be involved in the things that we should be in. 
and life will go easy, swell, and need for us. And here's what the psalmist is telling us. You can do all the right things. You can make all the right decisions. You can have all the bases covered, but eventually the mountains will move. Eventually the things that you are basing your security and your comfort and your refuge upon will be shaken. That day's coming. The psalmist is preparing us for that. And I would say, honestly, if the church, if preaching, if pastors don't prepare you for that day, then they're actually doing you a disservice. Martin Luther used to say, all that preaching really is, is to prepare people to die well. That a day of suffering is coming for every single one of us. And what will be our refuge in that moment? Where will we run? And this first stanza, because you guys, you got to remember, this is a song. Our first stanza ends with Selah. Selah means pause, time out, praise, and ponder what you just heard. Don't just go by it. Don't just shrug your shoulders. Don't act like it was a commercial you were trying to fast forward through on TiVo. But stop and sit in that reality for a moment. Stay. Think. Consider. What does that mean? Selah. Selah. When I think about that in my own life, there is such a temptation to want to run and fix all the things that I think could could be disruptive, all the things that I think could change, rather than to wait. And so here we see danger on the horizon. You have to understand too, when they think of the ocean, when the psalmist is thinking of the ocean here, when he says they roar and foam, the ocean is a great place of danger. It's a place of chaos. It's a place of death. It's a place of disruption. And so that's what makes it all the more peculiar as he transitions into his second stanza in verse 4. We go from an ocean to a river. Verse 4 says this, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. So the ocean, the ocean is a place of chaos. The ocean is a place of death. The ocean is a place where you have no control. If you've ever stood close to the ocean, especially on a stormy day, you see the waves with great violence and power and might crash against the shore. And then we get this picture of a life-giving stream going through Jerusalem, a river. So the water's gone from a threat of death and chaos to a place of life and transformation and goodness and peace. And so does this river, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The city of God, this is, a, this is a reference to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem, where God's people would dwell. But here's the thing about Jerusalem, there's no river in Jerusalem. I mean, if you're up on your Bible geography, there's no river there. In fact, one of the big challenges they would often face in Jerusalem was where are we going to get water? Where will water come from? What do we do to satisfy our thirst? What do we do to quench our thirst, especially in our place of need. But yet the psalmist is using it as a metaphor. He says, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. Jesus, in John 7, if you fast forward a couple, a thousand years to John, when Jesus is standing in Jerusalem, he stands up at one of the most holy of holy festivals. He stands up before all the religious leaders who would have been familiar with this psalm, and he boldly proclaims to them, I'm the living water. I'm the river of Jerusalem. I'm the place you come to satisfy and quench your thirst. And he was making reference to the Holy Spirit. 
So for you, Christian, if you're in this room today, the living water, the Holy Spirit who's taken up residence in you, this is the fulfillment of exactly what's going on in Psalm 46. Is, is, is that who God is for you? Let's just stop and be honest for a moment. When you think about your deepest needs for safety, your, your, your desire to, to, to get rid of the chaos, do you run to God? Does the Holy Spirit who's taken up residence in you, does it quench and satisfy your need for refuge and safety? The psalmist is teasing out that very question for us. Look at verse six again. The nations, he transitions back. The nations, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. (laughs) So all around the psalmist, the world seems to be falling apart. There's political turmoil. We can't relate with that, right? There's none of that in America. There's none of that in our world today. There's political chaos. Kings who seem mightier than you could ever imagine. Kings who would never be overthrown. Kings who have all the chariots and all the might and all the sophistication and all the wisdom who seem irremovable. They totter and they fall at the beckoning of the sovereign God of the universe. They stand under the control of God. So as these kings go, as these emperors come and go, as presidents come and go, as Supreme Court justices come and go, as nations come and go, God remains, and he's in control. I was reading an article in the LA Times a couple weeks ago, and it said Americans are consuming more news than ever in the last couple years, and it makes them more miserable and downtrodden than ever. (laughs) Yeah, amen is right. And you want to know why, like if I'm honest, because I can find myself slipping at the same point. If I watch some cable news for a few minutes, I find myself feeling pretty weary. I get anxious, and that's exactly what it's driven to do. They're playing on your heart. They're playing on where is your refuge? Where's your security? Where's your comfort? Is it in an elected official? Is it in a document that was written a couple hundred years ago? Or is it in the God of the universe? Because if it's in the God of the universe, if you realize you're first and foremost a citizen of heaven, then you're safe and you're secure. But that political turmoil that often feels so around us, it's just in the, it's in the air, it's in the ether, it feels so angst-ridden, doesn't it? We get so amped up. Tim Keller often says this about an idol, which I think this is directly related to politics for some of us. When a good thing, which politics is, I'm not against people being politically engaged, that's great. But when it becomes an ultimate thing, it does become a bad thing. When you look at politics, when you look at the state of what's going on in the world, when you look at nations, when you look at all these things and you give them all your hope, when you ascribe all power to them, when you think the outcome of one side or the other dictates what's going to happen in the future or the goodness of the future, you've given them way too much power. It's become ultimate in your life. And I think as, as us as a people, often in cities and communities, and I've been in a city living in Seattle, as you see God pushed more and more to the sideline, as you see God marginalized, that same hope, desire, energy, uh, excitement, passion that wells up inside every one of us gets transferred over into politics. Because humans are hope-based creatures. We live on hope. We need hope. We have to put our hope somewhere. And so when we we don't put it in God, we tend to put it in people and power and institutions. And everything becomes political. 
I think this is such a pertinent word for you. Christian, do you believe, do you believe that God is in control? That if America was, I mean, I, I don't know what the future look like, looks like, but if you were just go to a couple hundred years in the future, that if America no longer existed, that our king would still be sovereign and good. We are citizens of heaven, first and foremost. This world's not our home, and we have a God who rules and reigns over all things. In fact, he utters his voice, and the earth melts. There's something about the God of Jacob in this passage that we need to realize. When our God speaks, the world changes. When our God speaks, it's not like talking heads on cable news but rather it results in a universe coming into creation. It results in hearts being transformed. It brings about new life. When our God speaks, everything comes into existence. His voice brings nations into existence and out of existence. This is the God we're talking about. What safety and security and comfort comes from him it's beautiful imagery. And this is where if I was Jimmy, I'd sing this, but I can't sing. So I, I, and everyone would run. But this verse 7 is our chorus. It's our chorus. There's a chorus right in this song. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And once again, Selah, pause, praise, reflect, ponder, consider. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, we don't use the word fortress a lot, right? It's not a common word that we use unless you're like a five-year-old boy. You know, maybe that's in your vernacular then. But this is what it means. It means a permanent structure to offer defensive protection of everything behind it. A permanent structure to offer defensive protection of everything behind it. Another way of saying this, when you think about a fortress or you think about a fort, you're really talking about walls. Walls. Something to keep you safe. Something when you look outside and you see the danger, when you look on the horizon and you see the threats coming your way, you're trying to create a wall to minimize or to eliminate that danger, that threat. Now, once again, if you're a psalmist, he's talking about literal walls. You're building a wall so your enemy cannot come in and harm you. We today, we, we do this in a much more sophisticated, nuanced way because we don't need to build walls of a fortress, but we do it with our lives. We build up walls. Some of our walls are on the financial side. Once again, I'm going to be a little bit greedy. I'm going to be a little bit stingy. I'm going to hold on to my resources as much as I can because they serve as my walls. They're my fortress from a world that can be dangerous and unknown and unpredictable. So if I just wall myself off financially, I'll be safe from anything that could ever harm me. Some of us do it with our health. Some of us do it with our family life. Some of us do it with our schedules. And I think a lot of us, here's where our walls come in. In fact, when I sit down and talk with people, they'll often tell me about a relationship, a church, a family dynamic where something negative happens. So they created a, a wall. You even hear that language, right? I walled off that part of my life. I created a wall when that happened. There was a moment of abuse, there was a moment of abandonment, there was a moment of betrayal, there was a moment of misunderstanding, there was a moment where that person completely let me down. They sinned against me and I created a wall. And I put up a wall and that becomes your fortress. So we build our own fortresses and we say, God, your fortress, what you offer, the protection, the safety, the living water that you offer of freedom and grace in the city of God, 
I don't know if I can really live into that. Instead, I'm going to build my own wall. I'm going to build my own fortress. And we all do this, if we're honest. There's been moments of rejection, abuse, betrayal that leaves us building walls. So what are your walls? Where are your walls in your life? Is it stuff? Is it stuff that makes you feel safe and secure? Is it accomplishments that make you feel safe and secure? Is it something that when you think about being known in community, that seems terrifying? I mean, we have a saying around here at Stonegate, giving the last 10%. You know, it's really easy. Sometimes even when you're sitting inside a home group, when you're having that conversation, to give 90% of your story and then just a hedge on that last 10%. But you know, that's where all the good stuff is. That's where all the life transformation is. That's where all the wall deconstruction really is, is when we're willing to put that last 10% out there. To be honest, to be known. And if we remember, once again, this God is a living God who offers living water. And if you want to know where the new Jerusalem is, the new Jerusalem is actually the church. It's God's people. We are the city of God. And when we come together as followers of Jesus, who the Holy Spirit dwells in, we're the people of God. And if this is the place where people come to get hope, we have to be a place where we're also known, where we're honest, and we're willing to deconstruct and put down our walls because we have a greater safety and security in God. We don't have to hedge. It's interesting, too, this phrase, Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts, this derives and this comes from God's protection of his people at the Red Sea. The Lord of hosts. So the Israelites are facing an impossible task of crossing the Red Sea because it's a a big sea and they've got a couple million people and they've got the Egyptian army, the most powerful army, coming right behind them. And what do they do? They, They freak out like you would and I would. They completely go, God, I can't believe you just drug us out here to the desert to die. We're gonna get slaughtered here at the Red Sea. Why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? And they're in a place where they need a fortress. They need hope. And so the Lord of hosts shows up, a very present help and strength in your time of danger. Isn't that interesting? It's, uh, it's not an easy thing. I'm not going to try to just paste right over it when I think about us all being honest. But I do think when we come to church, when we go into our home groups so we don't find ourselves just playing games and going through the motions when it comes to church, And if we really want to grow spiritually and we really want to be free from some of the bondages of our past and sin and shame, we've got to get honest. We've got to find places and people where we can be known. I I mean, Stonegate, honestly, this makes all the difference in the world. That's the difference between playing church and and just playing games and really following Jesus. I always think of just like that imagery, like when, when you have two porcupines, I used to wonder, how did they snuggle? I mean, you got all those quills. And that is the, that's, that's, the, that's the proposition of Christians filled with all of our junk and sin trying to be in community. We're porcupines trying to snuggle. But yet there's grace upon grace. There's a living God who loves us. And he makes it possible for us to be known. Because you don't have to have it all together. That fortress can be deconstructed. And guess what? Newsflash. Everyone around you already knows you don't have it all together. In some ways, we're the last ones to always find that out. It's such good news when we come to that conclusion. So our psalmist finish, finishes with pointing us to the mighty works of God. What kind of God is this? 
verse 8. He says, come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. So come behold. That word behold is a fascinating word. You notice, once again, he doesn't use come shrug at the mighty works of the Lord. Yeah, okay, yeah, good for you, God. You made a universe, awesome. Good for you, God, you made mountains. Good for you, God, you made the sunrise again. Good for you, God, you changed a bunch of lives. But God, we're gonna praise you. We're gonna stand in a sense of awe and wonder and amazement about the type of God that you really are. We're not gonna leave here just ordinary people who went through the motions another day, but we met the living God and life will never be the same of that. We're beholding and what you behold, you become. This is the very message of transformation. The more you behold God, the more you become like him. And when we behold the works of the Lord, we know the kind of God that we're dealing with and it allows us to trust him and to have faith in him. And when life's falling apart and nothing makes sense and everything seems like it could never get better, we behold and we remember the power and the works of our God. That's what the psalmist is doing right here. He's saying life seems like it's about to fall apart, but when I behold, when I remember, when I recall the mighty works of my God, that's what sustains me. How about you? When you look at how gracious, consistent, and faithful, and mighty God has been in your life, does that lead you to a place of awe and wonder? You know, there's something really comfortable for me about just finding all the tips and tricks and methods to make my life work. Like I can just come up with the the best principles and I'm like, if I just enact these 10 things, marriage will go well, raising kids, work, all those things will just work. But here's the thing about concepts and principles and strategies. They only get you so far and then life happens, right? Life happens. And you have to begin to reconcile all these things that don't really seem to make sense, right? Okay, God, how... How do I understand your providence and your justice and your goodness when I look at all this wickedness? It's one of the biggest questions throughout all the Bible. God, how do I understand all of your provision and your kindness and how it seems that you care about every hair on my head, but it seems like financially I'm in ruin? God, how do I reconcile the fact that I seem to be doing all I can to move my life forward, but yet everything seems against me? Where are you, God? The only thing that will take you forward is a sense of awe and wonder. Principles, strategies, and methods only take you so far. And eventually, the only way life gets integrated, the only way that God continues to make sense is when you behold the works and character of God. When you know him, when you know his heart, when you can look at your past and see all the faithfulness that he's done. God, will you show up? God, will you keep being good? This is incredible. He makes wars to cease the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and he shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. So in the ancient world, the psalmist is talking about the best resources, the most secure thing you could do is stock up on military arms. The more weapons you had, the more power you had. The more weapons you had, the more safety you had. The more weapons you had, the more security you had. And what does God do? God comes in, not because he's mean and malevolent, but in his compassion and his kindness, he deconstructs all the things that you think will bring you safety so that you will come to your very end. And he says the spears and the chariots, the things that the world thinks will truly provide safety, all of those things will actually perish. Perish. 
Those things don't offer the safety that you think they're going to offer. In fact, I can deconstruct them. I can obliterate them at any moment. He waylays the chariots. Sometimes he does that to our lives. He takes apart a 401k. He takes apart an identity that you've long been proud of and held it as a form of self-righteousness over others. So where's your hope? Where's your hope? What is your chariot? What is your spear? What is the thing that you rely on? Where is your safety? Is it possessions? Is it power? Is it prestige? Is it your intellect? What is it that when it shakes, you begin to shake? And where do you go? Here's what I know about God. God will exhaust you to get at you. God will exhaust you to get at you. And I, I, we, we are such finite small creatures, aren't we? We're such finite small creatures. And some of us have the foolishness and the audacity to think that we'll survive the storms of life in a cardboard box of our own making. And God is so kind to come through and to completely obliterate that. And then tell you, come, come and I will be your refuge. I will be your strength. This is what Jesus meant when he said, come to me all you who are weary and I will give you rest. All those places, all those places that you're looking for living water and rest, God's so kind and loving to you, he's not gonna let you find them. But some of us, honestly, we would rather try and tread water in a storm than grab onto the life raft of God. Because there is a humbling, there is a surrendering that comes to grips in our souls when we're willing to say, God, I'm at my wit's end. God, I'm exhausted. I'm tired of flailing out there. And I need you. I need you to show up. And so what would God have us do? What does God want from us? What are the things that we need to accomplish in order for God to be our refuge? I'm so glad you asked. Verse 10. Be still. Be still. And know that I am God. So that's the very thing. There's absolutely nothing you can accomplish. There's absolutely nothing you can do. There's absolutely nothing you can bring to the table. What you are asked is to be still and know that God is God. This is the good news of the gospel, and this is the very message of the Bible, that every single one of us are on a lifelong journey to find out that what we ultimately need to do is to be still and know our maker. This is the gospel. In fact, the gospel, you can't do anything. You can't earn your salvation. You have nothing to bring to the table. There's nothing that impresses God. There's nothing you contribute to the process, but rather Jesus says, be still. And know that I am God. Put your faith, that's what it means to put your faith in Jesus. To be still and realize that the work has been accomplished, that there's nothing left for you to fulfill, but rather Jesus has accomplished it for you. That there's no more earning, there's no more striving, there's nothing else you can do to earn his love. And some of us, we are not content with that. We war against being still, don't we? We are a very busy people. One of my favorite books was by a guy, a sociologist named Neil Postman, and he wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he didn't know it, but he was picking up on a, another writer uh, that I really enjoyed, Blaise Pascal, a Christian philosopher from the 17th century, 
who used to say the real reason we fear being still is because of what we might hear. That our soul might actually have a chance to bring up to the surface some of the things inside of us that are painful, that are hard, that are concerning. And so as Neil Postman said, in America particularly, we are great at distracting ourselves. We love to keep ourselves so busy. And then we wonder, why don't we hear from God? <laughs> it's funny for me. Um, I think about when I was a teenager, and I'd be in my room just blaring my music. And then my mom would eventually barge in, and she'd be like, I was yelling for you to come on downstairs. I'd be like, I didn't hear you. I didn't hear you. And I really felt that that was a, a justifiable excuse. Like, well, I didn't hear you. And she, you know, clearly the answer is, you, you know, you need to turn on your music. The music's blaring. It's on 10. You've got it all the way up. It's as loud as it can be. And how many of us go through life in that very way? We've turned life up to 10, and we wonder why we don't hear from God, and we wonder why we don't see God, and we wonder what God is doing, and we wonder where God is. Be still. Dallas Willard, uh, another great theologian and philosopher, he said this, the number one task for the Christian in our era is to ruthlessly root out busyness. To ruthlessly root out busyness. And it is such an act of faith to dismiss the gods of productivity, to dismiss the gods who tell us if you don't get it figured out and if you don't do it, then it's all going to fall apart. But this is where your theology gets so practical and real. Not just in you read a stack of books, but in those million little decisions of will you be still? Will you trust God? Will he be your refuge? Or will your accomplishments, will your abilities be the things that you go to for your hope and your security? So be still is actually the Hebrew word rapah. Rapah. And I tell you that because it has this imagery of sorts of being in a fight and putting your hands down. And I don't know about you. I mean, I haven't been in a lot of fights, but I'm pretty sure that if you're in one, you don't want to put your hands down, right? That's not a very good strategy. I mean, if you're in a fight, you usually want, what's rule number one? Put your hands up. And so this imagery of rapah is you're in a war, you're in a battle, you're in a fight, and drop your hands. Drop your hands. Why would you drop your hands in a fight if you know who's fighting for you? if you know who's fighting on your behalf. So where do you need to drop your hands? Where do you need to root out busyness? And it is only through being still that we really know who God is. This is a God who will be exalted among the nations, a God who will be exalted in all the earth. It is not a, this might happen, a hypothetical, a possibility, but it is an absolute. God will be exalted. God will be praised. And it closes out with our chorus. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And I know it. I know the objection that I hear from a lot of you, and even from myself, even as I say, be still, right? I'm just going to put it up on the screen for you. Here's the objection you're saying. Yeah, but if I don't, then what will? 
Yeah, but if, if I don't solve that, yeah, but if I don't get my kid's life figured out, yeah, but if I don't intervene, yeah, but if I don't complete all those things, then what will happen? What will go wrong? What will they do? What will transpire? And we live in this reality, we live with this narrative, we live in this faith assumption based on our own accomplishments and abilities that if I don't, then what will? What is your formula for that? Yeah, but if I don't blank, then what will? And that, whatever the answer is to that, whatever you plug into those, that is the very place and space where you need to be still. That's where God's calling you to to step in and say, I'm your fortress, fortress, I am your refuge. Three times in our passage, in verse 1, verse 6, and verse 11, we are told that God is with us. God is with us. You know how you say that in Hebrew? Yahweh Sabaot Imanu. Imanu. Emmanuel. The very name that Jesus took. Emmanuel. God is with us. God is for us. So who could be against us? So what about you today? Where do you need to drop your hands? Where do you need to rest? Where do you need to be still? Remember Jesus in Mark 4? The storm, the seas are raging and roaring with foam. And Jesus wakes up and what does he say? Be still so interesting. I think he was actually speaking to the circumstances and to their hearts. And one day when our Lord returns, he will look at all the chaos, all the storm, all the raging and roaring seas of your life and say, be still. But today, but today, right now, he's saying that to your heart. Be still and know that I am God. Let's pray. God, there are places of understandable angst that have gripped many of us. There are places where fear has felt like a fortress, but actually more like a prison. There are places where you need to set us free, where you need to allow us to step into faith, to be still, and to know that you're God. Lord, my prayer would be that if for anyone in here has never trusted you, does not know you, is far from you, who is hearing this and says, I would like to know that God, they would realize today that they can drop their hands, that they can be still, and they can come to you and trust that you're a God who has already fought for them. So much so that you went to a cross and you took on sin that did not belong to you but, lo- but belonged to them. And you died a death that belonged to them. And then you rose from the grave so that they would have new life. And they can put their hope in that. And have a new life, a new eternity, and a God who is their fortress. And if that is their reality this morning, that they would, come full, they would go over to our prayer table and pray with someone. That they would let someone know today that you've shown up in a mighty way, that you've transformed them, that you've changed them. And for the rest of us in this room, that we would be still and know that you are God. In spite of all that swirls on around us, there is your spirit that dwells inside of us, bringing us comfort and refuge and strength. And God, that we would repent of 
all the ways that we try to save ourselves or secure ourselves, realizing that that can only be found in you and your finished work on the cross. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.